Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to the book of Hosea. The book of Hosea will be our final study of God's scandalous love in this book. And this morning we'll see this aspect of God's love, that God's love is a healing love. In Hosea 12 through 14, God's love is a healing love. We'll see this central truth together that the only cure for the terminal illness of our sin is God's grace in Christ. The only cure for the terminal illness of our sin is God's grace to us in Jesus Christ. We've got a number of verses to read here together. We're going to read uh, chapter 12 and 13 now. I invite you to follow along as I read. Hosea 12 will begin in verse 2. The Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. In the womb he took his brother by the heel and in his manhood he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us, the Lord, the God of hosts. The Lord is his memorial name. So you, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. A merchant in whose hands are false balances, he loves to oppress. Ephraim has said, ah, but I'm rich. I found wealth for myself, and all my labors they can't find in me iniquity or sin. I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. I will again make you dwell in tents as in the days of the appointed feasts. I spoke to the prophets. It was I who multiplied visions and through the prophets gave parables. If there is iniquity in Gilead, they shall surely come to nothing. In Gilgal they sacrifice bulls. Their altars also are like stone heaps on the furrows of the field. Jacob fled to the land of Aram. There Israel served for a wife and for a wife he guarded sheep. By a prophet, the Lord brought Israel up from Egypt, and by a prophet, he was guarded. Ephraim has given bitter provocation, so his Lord will leave his blood guilt on him and will repay him for his disgraceful deeds. Uh, Now Hosea 13. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel, and he incurred guilt through Baal and died. And now they sin more and more. And make for themselves metal images, idols skillfully made of their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. It is said of them, those who offer human sacrifice kiss calves. Therefore, they shall be like the morning mist or like the dew that goes early away, like the chaff that swirls from the threshing floor, like smoke from a window. But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me. Besides me, there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But when they had grazed, they became full. They were filled and their heart was lifted up, therefore they forgot me. So I am to them like a lion, like a leopard I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breasts and there will I devour them like a lion, as a wild beast would rip them open. He destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. Where now is your king to save you in all your cities? Where are all your rulers, those of whom you said, give me a king and princes? I gave you a king in my anger, and I took him away in my wrath. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is kept in store. The pangs of childbirth come for him, but he's an unwise son. For at the right time, he does not present himself at the opening of the womb. I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall ransom them from death. O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion 
is hidden from my eyes. Though he may flourish among his brothers, the east wind, the wind of the Lord shall come, rising from the wilderness, and his fountain shall dry up. His spring shall be parched. It shall strip his treasury of every precious thing. Samaria shall bear her guilt because she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword. Their little ones shall be dashed in pieces and their pregnant women ripped open. Well, it was in 1926, the Roaring Twenties here in the United States, but in terms of world history, the era between World War I, roughly the years 1914 to 1917, and World War II in Europe, 1939 to 1945, that this man, a man by the name of Oswald Spengler, wrote a massive work entitled The Decline of the West. Now, I know the minute you see him, you think, what a happy guy. Because he looks like just, a, just like the, you know, the most joyful fellow. Of course he wrote a book about the decline of the West. But in this book, he identified four stages in civilizations throughout history. There's a birth, there's growth, there's decline, and there's death. And he tracked this throughout civilizations throughout the world. And if you know history, you can see that this is true, not just in history, but we also experience it in our own lives as well. Now, Spangler kind of articulated and quantified something that's been true for a long time, but we see it in our lives as well. Now, imagine with me that you're here this morning and you just birthed a newborn child. And as soon as this child is born, you hear that she has a fatal form of leukemia. In fact, this diagnosis means this child will not live years, but in a few weeks will pass from this earth. This life cycle, this birth, growth, decline, and death is aborted. You just have a few weeks. There's no growth for this child. The minute you hear this news, your, your heart is moved with sadness and grief because you know this ought not to be. You know that the normal life cycle of a human being, there, there are certain things that you should live and enjoy and experience, and this child will experience none of these things. But spiritually speaking, God's word describes us in similar terms. The wages of sin is death. We're born into this world with a fatal disease with an aborted life cycle. In fact, Ephesians 2 describes it even more, uh, more vividly by saying, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. The life cycle, the, the, the growth, the design for God, we can't flourish in this world. We're born with a fatal illness. And yet we'll see this morning that through Christ, God heals an incurable disease. God gives life to what is fatal. He works a miracle when no one else could. But first this morning in our text, we'll see our sickness is our sin. Now, the patriarchs are biblical figures in the book of Genesis, and there are some more significant than others. So we've got Abraham, kind of the father of many nations. Then you have his son, Isaac, and then you have Isaac's son, Jacob. Now, Jacob becomes sort of the uh, patriarchal father of Israel because he has sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. But all of these men, heroes of the faith on one level, are all failures of faithfulness on another level. 
And perhaps of all of them, Jacob stands out as the weakest and the most deceitful. One night in Genesis chapter 32, Jacob meets a man. He's traveling, and on the way, he meets this man, and he begins to fight this man, to wrestle him. He wrestle his, wrestles him all night long. At the end of this battle, he realizes he's not wrestling just anyone, but it's a messenger from God, likely the Son of God incarnate. And before the Son of God leaves, he touches Jacob's hip. For the rest of his life, Jacob will walk with a limp, and he renames him Israel. Then the nation of Israel inherits her name from Jacob. If the nation inherited not only Jacob, then Israel's name, but also his character. You see, the Lord appeals to Israel's and Judah's history in his charges against the nation. Chapter 12, verse 2, the Lord has an indictment against Judah. An indictment is a listing of formal charges. He will punish Jacob according to his ways. So he immediately parallels the nation with its founder, with Jacob. We then get some insight into Jacob's character. Verse 3, he is a heel grabber. As a baby, he grabbed his brother by the heel. Then as an adult, he fought with God. Jacob's name literally means heel grabber. Now, a heel grabber is someone who's in a race and reaches out to grab someone's heel, cast them to the side, and drag that person back and, and thereby get an advantage. Jacob is someone who takes advantage of the people around him to, to get ahead. He does it with his family and even attempts to do it with God himself. Now, the story in Genesis 32 is a little bit tricky to understand. Jacob wrestles with God. It seems that he's fighting with God, and then in the end, God blesses him. But Hosea 12.4 gives us a little insight into what's going on here. There's a transformation, it seems, within Jacob that night. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. It seems that that night, Jacob, the dirty heel grabber, the dirty fighter, became Israel, humble beggar for grace. The nation of Israel is like Jacob. Resisting God's rule, attempting to deceive God in their sin. Yet Israel has misunderstood the nature of God's blessing on Jacob. You see, God didn't bless Jacob that night because Jacob was more powerful than God. Because Jacob was more determined than God. He somehow overpowered the Lord. What Hosea does here is he plays a trick in time that's not immediately clear in Hosea, but it's really clear in the book of Genesis. Where did God meet Jacob? Look at the end of Hosea 12.4. He met God at Bethel. Well, we've got this compression of time here in Hosea, but in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 8, Jacob again is, is traveling and he has a dream. And a ladder appears in this dream. And in the dream, the Lord speaks to Jacob and says, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. Jacob's dream is at Bethel, Genesis 28. It's years before Genesis 32 when Jacob wrestles with God at Peniel. Why does God bless Jacob that night? God blesses Jacob because God promised he would bless Jacob. I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father Isaac, and the God of Isaac. 
I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. God blessed Jacob not because Jacob is worthy of his blessing, but because God is faithful to his promise. Yet the nation of Israel is like Jacob. They're guilty of injustice, and particularly in the way they run their economy. Some people get ahead in life not by being faster, but by grabbing the heels of the other people in the race. Hosea 12, 7, a merchant in whose hands are false balances he loves to oppress. Now, in ancient times, you would measure wealth in a way differently than we do now. We don't typically use scales, although we still have the idea of equity in our culture, but you'd measure out grain or you'd measure out gold or, or currency this way. You'd assess the value. But some merchants would start sort of with their thumb on one side of the scale. And in so doing, they'd gain an advantage. They used dishonest scales to evaluate how much something was worth. That's the Israelites. They don't give fair deals, and God calls this oppression. Christians should be just in their business dealings and also seek to establish systems in government and economics that are fair, that are just in their treatment of people. Proverbs 11.1, 1, a false balance is an abomination to the Lord. This biblical teaching should inform our conversations on economics, on race, on culture, not just our individual businesses. It may be thing, there, that there are things we don't see because we haven't had to see them. But not only are the Israelites unjust, they're also self-righteous about it. Verse 8, they surround themselves with their prosperity and their riches tell them they're okay. They ignore their sin. Ephraim has said, ah, but I'm rich. I found wealth for myself and all my labors. They can't find in me iniquity or sin. So they deny their sin because they're surrounded by their comfort. And yet in Hosea 12, 14, the Lord says of these same things that they are disgraceful deeds. Now, we're not going to wade in too deep here because we could spend far more than a single sermon or a series of sermons on this idea. There are a lot of hot-button issues in our culture right now. But race is certainly one of them. It continues to be a hot topic. It has for a long time. Sin can manifest itself in any direction for any color of skin. But one of our difficulties is that far too many of us surround ourselves with voices that are just like our own. Or if we have friends of a different skin color, we assume that we know what they think without asking them what they think or giving them permission to speak and just listening. When our family served in Illinois, we had a sister congregation in town, a same beliefs, same practices. They were largely African-American. The, kind of the, the way the ratio in our congregation worked was we were a largely white congregation with some African-American members, and their congregation was kind of like the flip mirror image of that. They were largely African-American with a few white people there. Uh, shortly after our family moved to Illinois was when the Ferguson, Missouri stuff started. It was one, obviously, a series of events, but one evening, our churches would worship together, pray together, fellowship together, but we said, you know what, we're going to have a conversation about these things, and we're just going to listen. So we're not here to engage in a debate. We're not here, like, we're not inviting them to, to I don't know, sort of have our say. We, we want to hear, and we want to learn. 
And uh, when, when they came, the, the pastor and I basically, for the congregations, we, we represented, we had, he and I had a conversation on the platform, and then afterward, uh, we had a, a dinner together. That brother that night said some things that made me very uncomfortable. He said some things that I disagreed with. But we were there to listen and learn. And his experience was far different from my experience. That we had a lot of things in common. One of the ways, I think, that we can begin as Christians to work through this is not by conceding biblical ground, but is talking to people who have different experiences and giving them permission to talk. I promise you, I promise you, if you do this, you will find some things that at least begin to affect and form your perspective. You may not be able to agree with their conclusions. In fact, I think it's likely that you won't. But you may begin to understand their perspective. And in understanding their perspective, you may begin to learn to love them better. That's one way we can love our neighbor. Well, why am I saying this? My encouragement here is that we not be so certain of our rightness. That we surround ourselves like the Israelites did with voices that affirmed them in what they thought. Only but that we examine the way that we're loving our neighbor or failing to love our neighbor just in light of God's word. The greatest danger to Christians loving our neighbors today is that so much of how we view our neighbor is formed primarily by talking heads, by news pundits, by online conversations, rather than by the word of God lived out in the community of the local church. So many other voices speak so much louder than God's word to his people. God's people in Israel, were self-righteous, which led to their pride. Hosea 13, 6, the Lord says, they forgot me. Well, why does this happen? Verse 6 goes on. They became full, they were filled, and their heart was lifted up. The Lord predicted that. He, he knew, he warned against this happening in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Take care, he said, lest you forget the Lord your God, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God. Life was good, so God's people forgot God. Isn't this how life works? We get comfortable and we forget the Lord. Full lives often lead us to be full of ourselves. Then they multiplied their sin by erecting idols in God's place Hosea 13, 2, they sin more and more and make for themselves metal images. We're like, whew, we're good. We don't make these kind of images. Well, our idols look different, but we're really good at building them. We don't build, you know, objects of metal, but we insert metal chips that feed information to screens that control how we spend our time. Metal microchips feeding information are the most powerful source of information in the world today. They're metal parts perhaps installed on a boat or a car in the garage or in your house or a day at the beach. How many of God's people regularly miss corporate worship to pursue an idol? More than most of us would like to admit. I mean, one evidence of pride in our lives is that we think we can skip God and 
God's okay with that. How many days do we spend more time on social media than in God's Word? How many Sundays do we quickly sneak in a snack of gathering for worship so we can enjoy the meal of the rest of life, forgetting it's the Lord's day, not the Lord's hour? God says his word. He's given us all things to enjoy, but we often deceive ourselves by judging ourselves according to our expectation rather than the Lord's. So we all got this sin sickness. How does God respond to it? He responds by cutting it off in judgment. He punishes sin according to his character, and he's always just in his dealings with us. Israelites, unjust. God, perfectly just. Look again at Hosea 12 too. How does God punish Jacob according to his ways? He will repay him according to his deeds. In other words, God evaluates the record of our sin in light of his perfectly righteous character. Paul tells us in Colossians 2 verse 14 about the record of our sin that stands against us with its legal demands. In other words, we don't walk into the divine courtroom of God's judgment as he scrambles looking for like what in the world could he bring against us. We've all got this very clear, very long rap sheet. You don't have to go searching for this. It's evident that we're sinners. And the result of this is pain in our lives. Hosea 13 verses 7 and 8. God is the most compassionate father to his children, but he responds far differently to those who reject him. Uh, You've heard the expression mama bear like the, the, I, I see t-shirts like this where it's like a bear with mama on it. That's not someone you want to mess with. Or if she's got kids, you don't want to be like messing with her kids. Why? Because there's nothing more dangerous than a mama bear protecting her cubs. You don't want to get between a mother bear and her cubs. The, the most violent, the most angry time you can meet this bear is when she's protecting her cubs. Well, God says in Hosea 13, 7 and 8, I am to them like a lion, like a leopard, I will lurk beside the way, I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. It's the most violent, the most painful imagery. Much of our culture today and much contemporary preaching presents a picture of a cream puff God who just wants you to be happy, just the happiest version of yourself. It's not someone you need to take seriously, but the picture here is far different. Hosea 13, 17 says that I, as a pastor, will give an account for the souls of those under my care. So the last thing we want to do is pretend that God is something other than he has said about himself. Jeremiah preached to Judah. So uh, Hosea preaches to Israel before Israel falls, and Hosea, or Jeremiah preaches to Judah just before and after Judah falls. And he tells us how the prophets and the priests misled the people. Jeremiah 6, verses 13 and 14. From prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely, Jeremiah says. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace. When there is no peace, God takes our sin very seriously. It ultimately leads to death. James 4 tells us you're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. I mean, even those who live very long, full lives, like Miss Jean sitting down here, they look back at their life and they feel like they could blink and it's, it's gone. It's, it's just unbelievable how quickly life goes. This, this feeling, this momentary feeling, this, this vanishing of, of all these years is part of God's judgment on sin. 
Hosea 13.3 uses similar language. Therefore, they shall be like the morning mist or like the dew that goes early away. Yet the consequences of sin are more severe than just a gradual wasting away. Hosea 13.16, they will fall by the sword, their little ones dashed in pieces, and their pregnant women ripped open. Unbelievable picture. In 2 Kings chapter 8, the prophet Elijah has a moment where he sees the future. He's talking to a man who's not yet king of Syria, a man named Haziel. He will become the king of Syria. And Elijah begins to weep because he foresees that this will happen, that Haziel will lead people to kill God's people with the sword to crush babies. It's the worst kind of tragedy. and leads Elijah to inconceivable grief. Yet this is no imaginary sin. We don't have to look far to see the same kind of sin in our own nation. As the blades of medical workers dismember babies in the womb. And I've always thought of abortion as one of America's great sins. And there's no question that it's a heinous crime against humanity and against our maker. It also occurred to me in reading this passage that abortion is also a form of God's judgment on us. And our own hand enacts this judgment The birth rate in the United States is somewhere between 1.7 and 1.8, depending on the year. And statisticians tell us that when a society reaches a birth rate below 2.1, that society will die. It cannot reproduce itself. We're dying too fast to replace ourselves. We're committing cultural suicide, and our own hands are enacting the judgment of God on our sin. The wages of sin is death. So where in the world do we find hope in the midst of so much death and judgment? We find healing, thankfully, in Hosea 14. Let's read Hosea 14, beginning in verse 1. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us, we will not ride on horses, and we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. In you the orphan finds mercy. I will heal their apostasy, I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily, he shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His root shall spread out, his beauty shall be like the olive, and his fragrance like Lebanon. He shall return and dwell beneath my shadow, they shall flourish like the grain, they shall blossom like the vine." Their fame shall be like the vine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. So chapter 14 highlights two main truths. One is a call to return to the Lord, and the second is God's grace in response to our repentance. The first call is a call to return to the Lord in verses 1 to 3. Look at Hosea 14, 1. Return to the Lord your God. And then again in verse 2, return to the Lord. What does it mean to return to God? You ever have one of those moments in life where you're walking into a conversation and you literally have no idea what to say. Now, 
I, at some level, talk for a living, but I find myself here frequently. I'm walking into a, a meeting or a counseling session. I don't know what to say. I say, Lord, would you just give me the words to speak? It'd be so nice right now if, like Balaam's donkey, someone would just speak to me. Well, in this moment, God graciously tells his people exactly what to say. Look again at verse 2. Take with you, he says, words and return to the Lord. Say to him. And then Hosea tells us exactly what to say. Now, we're going to take these ideas in reverse order because that's how they work logically. Although these two ideas that we're going to see are inseparable. So look at verse 3. The first thing we see is that we must admit humbly our inability. Humbly admit our inability. What's the heart of Israel's problem? Well, they're looking for human salvation. Assyria shall not save us. The steps to salvation are to admit that no human power can save them. And we don't have to look very far to see the same tendencies in our lives. But if you polled most Christians in America today, we'd say our hope is in God, but if you sift through our conversations, our posts online, we'd see that our hope is in Assyria. Now, I don't mean literally Assyria, I just mean something like Assyria. In this day, Israel's day, Assyria is the most powerful political force on the planet. Israel hoped to form a powerful alliance with a powerful political force. David wrote in Psalm 20, some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. We might write the psalm this way, some trust in presidents, some in elections, but we, brothers and sisters, must trust in the name of the Lord our God. Then in verse 3, we will say no more our God to the work of our hands. That was taught from a very young age, and rightly so, that work ethic, a strong work ethic, is one of the most important components to being a faithful person. I still firmly believe this. But ironically, the way to life is admitting that you're dead. In a culture where part of the fabric of our narrative is that if you work hard, you can be anyone, anything you want to be. It's difficult to see that we ultimately can't solve our problems by working hard. One of the hardest parts of becoming a Christian is realizing that you're not a good person. That the way to the cross is the way of humility and repentance. It's the publican in the temple crying out, God, be merciful to me. It's not something we can work and earn. So we humbly confess our inability But secondly, we hopefully confess God's infinite ability. What is Hosea's prayer in verse 2? Say to the Lord, take away all iniquity. We have a fatal disease. It's called sin. And apart from a miracle, we cannot be healed. Who can perform a miracle? God. Just God. So we plead to the Lord, take away my iniquity. What does self-cleansing look like? It might be that it's never occurred to you that the trappings or the culture of being a Christian are far less important than complete dependence on Christ and Christ alone. Some people just identify as Christians, like they identify as a Republican or a Democrat. But a right relationship with God comes through repentance and faith in Christ, and then is backed up by a life that shows the reality of that relationship. Now, many of you may not be aware of this, but we have a five-paragraph church covenant. And of these five paragraphs, the first paragraph is the gospel. 
that we have a relationship with God through faith in Christ alone. The next four paragraphs are what it means to live out the meaning of the gospel. And the teaching of both Scripture as well as of our church covenant is this, that faithful church membership is reflective of faith in Christ. True Christians shouldn't live in open sin. Certainly shouldn't celebrate it. (coughs) Membership in a local church means that we're also members of Christ and his body. It's not just a club. Eternity rides not just on a profession of our faith in Christ, but also the testimony of a life living that out. We don't plead like these people, God, take away our iniquity and then celebrate that same iniquity. Repentance is the first step to life, but grace is what saves us. It's like the worst possible curse, so I apologize for that. When we cry out to the Lord to save us, what does he do? Verse 4, he says, I will heal their apostasy. Apostasy is claiming faith in Christ and then turning from that profession. How does God heal our sin? Colossians 3 tells us about the record of our sin debt that stands against us, but also goes on and says this sin debt, God set aside nailing it to the cross. God takes our sin the record that stands against us, and he nails it to the cross through the blood of Christ. God deals with our sin, our coming death, through the death of his Son. You see, God created all things good, but we're all born into this world sinners, by birth and by choice. And apart from God's grace, we have no hope. Yet anyone who places his faith in Christ can be rescued from this sin, from this judgment, from this pain, from this death. Oh, friend, if you're here, would you turn from your sin and trust Jesus? Or would you receive God's mercy through Christ? God will heal you. But God doesn't simply remove the consequences of our sin. He welcomes us to his family. Verse 4, I will love them freely. Verse 5, he refreshes us. I will be like the dew to Israel. And then verse 8, he cares for us better than the human, any human father ever could. It's I who look after you. Because of everything that we've said already, which is absolutely true, that God takes our sin very seriously. It's easy to come to the Lord with a twisted picture of what God's character is actually like. God takes our sin so seriously that he sent his son to bear our sin. Well, how seriously does God take sin? So seriously that he was willing to part with his own child to pay for it. God isn't one to sneeze or, or, or look at the side of his eye. Like he takes sin very seriously. He deals with it head on. But that is not how God treats his children. The Lord gives us a beautiful picture of this in Luke chapter 15, the story of the prodigal son, a story Jake preached not long ago. And we're not going to walk through the whole story, but I want us to picture one moment in that story. Because you have the son. Now the son, he's a bad, bad kid. He's made all kinds of terrible choices. One day he wakes up and he's like, 
Look at me, I'm in a pigsty. Life at home has got to be better than this. So he goes home. And the picture that Jesus paints there in Luke 15 is, as a son, he's, he's trudging wearily up the road, hoping he can be a servant in his father's house. What is the father doing? He's sitting on the porch, looking. He's looking, longing, loving, wanting to see his son. And Jesus says, when the son was still a long way off, you could just see him. The father knows, that's my boy. And he gets up and he runs. And he hugs him and he greets him and he gives him the best robe. He throws a party, he puts a ring on his finger. Brothers and sisters, when we come to God, we don't want to come to some distant taskmaster who's like, finally you got the picture. God is far more willing to meet us in our sin than we are to come to him in our sin. God loves us as a father far more than our heart understands his father-like love. God is far more willing to deliver us than we are to be delivered. He gets up, he runs, he embraces, he throws the best clothes on us. Now, the, the, the problem with this is we know two things. One we know very personally. The other we can know by faith. The thing that we know personally is that we are bad kids. We don't deserve the Father's love. We begin to think, and you may not have to think very far, maybe this morning or yesterday or the day before, maybe what you said to your wife last night or your kids this morning, or what you thought or saw this week. And the evidence all around you screams, you don't deserve God's love. And if you're honest, you have to say, that's true. Our experience tells us this is true. But oh, brothers and sisters, God's word declares more loudly, more beautifully, that the character of our God is to love sinners. People surrounded by the pigsty of their sin to embrace and welcome those same sinners home. He loves us freely. He looks after us. He cares for us. He welcomes us home. Do you know the heart of God? God's heart for sinners is far greater than the heart of sinners for God. And then in the end, perhaps you caught this as we read through chapter 13. Oh, death, where are your plagues? Oh, Sheol, where is your sting? Where do we find that quoted? 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. God delivers from sin, cares for us as his children, and gives us eternal victory through Christ. All these are ours through faith in him. Won't you come to Christ today? Let's take a minute now and respond to God's word of repentance and faith. I'll give you a moment to talk with God personally, and then I'll close this time in prayer. Let's talk to him now.